Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, and I'm your host, Raghu Marcus. Today, we're going to talk about something that's common to common issue with all of us. And uh, I found this uh, talk by Ramdas that uh, is about relationships, the yoga of relationships. Some really good stuff in here today, guys. Um, basically, the premise is that uh, relationships, for the most part, basically reinforce people's separateness. And, um, you know, I mean, what, half or more marriages break up in this country or in the West? Maybe more in this country. I think there's even more. Um, So I have a little bit of direct personal experience with Ramdas and this subject. He talks about how... Um, at the point of this, uh, these talks that he gave, he said he used to, um, officiate at marriages and he no longer does that. But, uh, two years ago he did that for me, uh, when I remarried. Um, and, uh, so I got a direct experience of what he do- does in this particular ceremony and he calls it the triangle. And the images of two partners, two people as partners, and uh, at different uh, ends of the triangle, and at the point that they come together, that coming together, that third angle or third point is the shared awareness that we as individuals have behind our personalities our separateness. And these two people can come together and uh, find that shared awareness. And so that has been uh, the primary, uh, the essence of, of what Ramdas does with people when, when he marries them. And he's done a few in the last few years, and I guess he didn't do, do them for a long time. Um, so, yeah, and he talks about, I think, a, a really important thing. Um, and he did uh, at, at uh, my wife Saraswati and my wedding, which was a couple of years ago. We're very fortunate that uh, Ramdas married us and uh, it was a very special occasion, obviously. But uh, it was done, uh, uh, he invited us to do it in his backyard in Maui at his house. So it was really lovely. And basically, you know, it's the feeding of the uniqueness of the individuals that feed each other, feed their uniqueness, and that in turn serves this shared consciousness space. Because without that shared consciousness, and uh, you just you know there's you just stay in separate corners, so it becomes a very difficult thing. So um, with that shared consciousness, you're able to to go through what every couple or anybody in any relationship, and it doesn't really have to be just a marriage. It can be a a real friendship, uh, you know. So um, the interesting thing, now I say I just got married a couple of years ago, uh, remarried, and uh, to a very special woman who I met at Ram Dass's house uh, five or six years ago, actually. And um, I, I was 
incredibly fortunate because we immediately had that shared awareness uh, aspect in our consciousness. But now go back, I'll go back to the days when I was in India with Maharaji and, and, uh, it so happened that he was, he was marrying people left and right. And, um, and in particular, uh, um, I was married by him at that time with, uh, with a woman who became the mother of my two sons, actually. And, and he did, it was so weird what he did. He, every day we'd show up for, for one period, he'd say, are you friends? He pointed us, are you friends? Say, yeah, we're friends. Yeah. And he'd go on day after day. Are you friends? <laughs> and we were really good friends and there was no romantic involvement. We got together because of a shared love of actually Ramdas and then Maharaji. And then, um, Many months later, I don't know, six or eight months later, he, he, he said, he says to her, did you sleep with him? Did you sleep together? And she goes, not, absolutely not. And it was true. And of course that night we did. And then the next question was, when are you getting married? When are you getting married? I was like, and he used to say that marriage brings, um, a greed attachment and lust to people is very difficult. <laughs> so I actually went to him and I said, well, well, you know, after he said, okay, you're going to get married. And, okay. I'm going to get married. And then he said, uh, no, I went to him a, few, a couple of days later and I said, um, you said marriage brings a lot of attachment and so on and lust and everything. Well, why would anybody get married? And basically I was saying to him, why are you doing this to me? Because I was thinking I was a, a solo sadhu in India. And, you know, the idea of marriage wasn't in my playbook, but he just turned to me and he looked in my eyes and he just said, it's your desire. And I got it. I got it that I really wanted to do this. Now, I was amongst, we were amongst, I would say at that time, maybe 10, 15, maybe, uh, marriages that he put the, you know, he put, he didn't put the people, the people got together and he fulfilled their desire of him marrying them, us. Well, over the years, I think there's one that survived. Yeah. One out of all those, just one. So, wow. What does that mean? Well, I think we all had to fulfill some karma here. And, and in the getting together that we did in that particular space around him was a, was very special and unique. And in my case, uh, um, it fulfilled so many different things that I needed to fulfill karmically in this life. So, uh, but at the time, um, you know, we just didn't have conceptually the uh, wisdom that Ramdas is talking about in this uh, yoga of relationships. We were very young and um, very idealistic, and we we had some stuff. We had a lot of stuff to work through, and it took many years to do that. Not to mention dealing with the fact that he left his body soon after this happened. Um, and the other thing that's interesting. Um, 
and that we got over there. I mean, so there's this experience of going through this relationship and going through it with him and, and what happened to us after. And by the way, I would say 98% of the people that split up are, they're all very close. I mean, they're like extended families with their new wives and children and God knows what. And one of that, and that's what I wanted to mention is family. Um, we got introduced to an Indian family, uh, to many Indian families that were just part of the fabric around Maharaji. Maharaji was not, it was a family quote unquote guru. He did not have uh, disciples necessarily. He had devotees and he came from a family himself. He had children and a wife. At the time, we didn't know this. All of this you can find, by the way, in Be Loved Now, Ram Das and Rameshwar Das's great book of a couple of years ago. Uh, has a wonderful chapter in there on Maharaji's sort of bio, as much as we could find out or they could find out. But the family, um, it's really interesting because the family over in India, the tightness and the love that is just... Um, that binds them allows for allows for arguments. It allows for fights. It allows for people to be angry with each other without recrimination and without um, holding on to things for a year where you don't talk to your mother, your father, your brother, or your sister. That just, I mean, you know, I am talking generally, and of course, there's many instances of families that are dysfunctional in India. But the ones that we were introduced to that had this basic fabric of spirituality and heritage uh, of the spirit, of um, being devoted, of understanding karma and reincarnation and all of that, allowed for these families to bind together in a way that is not natural to us in the West. I mean, it wasn't natural in my family to be able to have an argument with my father and not you know, and not end up with recrimination and anger. I mean, he had a lot of anger himself, you know. And uh, as I said in a previous podcast, without Maharaji intervening him and <laughs> making him take acid, uh, I don't know where our relationship would have gone. But um, it's different. It is radically different. Um, the, the, the family, um, the experience that we got from these people what it's led to is an experience of how we relate with each other in satsang, which is the Indian word for a community of wayfarers with a common purpose. Um, and, uh, and I fortunately, because all of my family all ended up in India at one time, uh, most, almost all, well, all of them, except for my mother who later came and, met um, Siddhima, another, uh, our mother in India who takes care of Maharaji's temples. So my, my entire family has been blessed by um, living with Maharaji. And we have had that commonality um, experience um, between us that's allowed us to have a little glimpse of being able to... Um, fight with each other, and still love each other. So um, this is a, a, a wonderful uh, talk that, that Ram Das gives. Um, and and he, he touches upon, uh, you know, 
not just the relationships between people, but the relationship of a pure master and a, and a devotee and how it has nothing to do with intellect and, and so on and so forth. And, and of course, we don't make these choices. Uh, he does tell one funny thing, which uh, I'll end this with, um, where he, you know, when he first met Maharaji, he was like a Buddhist. He was, you know, a major, you know, Harvard professor, intellectual and so on and so forth. And he was like Hinduism was this gaudy, weird day glow light weird stuff and he wasn't into it at all and then he gets to Maharaji and people are dropping at his feet you know and prostrating at Maharaji's feet and he's like what I'm this is like touching feet what you know he was so turned off an hour later he was fighting people to get at those feet so <laughs> it has nothing to do with the mind and in my own experience I was somewhere in India with him before I met Maharaji and there was all of this touching of the feet going on with another uh, Swami actually. And I was like, I can't do that. It's in Ram, I said, Ramdas, what, what is this? I mean, uh, you know, why am I touching feet? I don't get it. He said, well, it's just honoring that place of God in you is honoring the place of God in, in this holy person. And whatever it is that comes up in your mind that is weird, well, you know, just use that as uh, fodder for becoming aware. I said, okay. Still nothing. I couldn't get near it. I went up and I was saw Maharaji the first time. He walked out the door. I mean, it wasn't even a thought. I mean, and I can't tell you why. I can't tell you what was going on inside that propelled me like a... Uh, you know, a firecracker on, you know, I just blew up and, and just folded in at, at the feet. Um, I mean, it, you know, and I'm sure many people are going, what? <laughs> and that's what we did when we first got there. What? Who's touching feet? But when there's a, there's a certain thing that comes from deep inside that recognizes Divinity, I mean, that recognizes that place inside us that is complete love and you bow to it because there's nothing else to do. Well, let's listen to Ramdas talking about the yoga of relationships. How can we maintain our own integrity or identity in a relationship, especially a close one, without compromising the integrity of others? Okay. Which you do you want to preserve? <laughs> when I look at relationships, my own and others, I see a wide range of reasons for people to be together and ways in which they are together. And I see ways in which relationship, which means something that exists between two, two or more people, for the most part, reinforces people's separateness as, as individual entities. And it doesn't just honor it, it treats it as the reality of it. When um, I perform, or I used to perform, I don't anymore, but I used to perform weddings. I was a Mary, I had a license for a while. It was revoked by the temple here at Hanuman Temple. <laughs> His was, too. <laughs> we used to be able to perform weddings. And um, I do a lot under the table. Or, uh, um, but the image I always have when I'm 
performing a wedding is the image of a triangle in which there is the, the two partners and then there is this third force, this third being that emerges out of the interaction of these two. And the, the third one is the one that is um, the shared awareness that lies behind the two of them. And that the two people in the yoga of relationship come together in order to find that shared awareness that exists behind them in order to then dance as two so that the two-ness brings them into one and the oneness dances as two. And that, that's a, a kind of a vibrating relationship between the one and the two so that people are both separate and yet they are not separate. And they're experiencing that the relationship is feeding both their uniqueness as individuals and their unit of consciousness. Now, that's extremely delicate because it's so easy to get entrenched in your own, I need this, I want this, you're not fulfilling this for me, and seeing the other as object. But the delight which all of you have experienced of being with somebody where you are sharing an awareness of the predicament you are both in. And you're sharing an awareness of the predicament, even when you're having an argument with each other, there's an awareness that you're both almost delighting in the horrible beauty of it. I don't know whether any of you have had that. I've had it quite often, you know. Because I'm around pretty conscious people a lot of the time, and we fight, you know, we have differences. But we're enjoying, we're hating it and enjoying it both, because there's these levels that we're playing at all the time. And um, but we come into relationship often very much identified with our needs. I need this. I need security. I need refuge. I need friendship. I need this. And all of relationships are symbiotic in that sense. We come together because we fulfill each other's needs at some level or other. Problem is that when you identify with that, those needs, you always stay at the level where the other person is her or him satisfying that need. And it really only gets extraordinarily beautiful when it becomes us and then when it goes behind us and becomes I. So when, you, when I ask you which person are you saving or you're protecting or whose integrity you're protecting, I can see, for example, that I enter into relationships. I understand that to enter into the yoga of relationship is an extremely difficult thing to do. It's the hardest yoga that I know of, actually, because your ego is so vulnerable when you start to open up to another human being. You feel so tender and so vulnerable. And before that one place gets going strong enough, the, you get frightened and you pull back and you get entrenched. And that happens all the time in relationships. People that come together with the greatest meaning of being, feeling love, and then they get caught in their needs and their frustrations and they separate. One of the problems is that we tend to put relationships a little bit on the back burner in life. We get a relationship and then we go out to a job and we go out to other things and we sort of, now we've got that together, we'll go do life. And for a relationship to be a yoga of relationship is like a full-time operation for years. I mean, uh, for me, one of my examples is uh, Stephen and Andrea Levine. Stephen and Andrea used to be really nice, friendly, sociable people before they met. 
This is on a tape, too. <laughs> and then they met. I used to like Stephen. And then... <laughs> and then they met, and they really started to be together, and um, the amount of energy that had to go into staying clear with each other is what happens is so much goes down so fast in relationships, it's really hard to process it fast enough to keep clear. So you keep getting this kind of residual of old stuff that isn't quite digested enough, and you end up uh, separate from the person because you didn't have time to stop and kind of work it through, clear it, and so on. So what they did was they moved onto land with no telephone and put up a big sign, no trespassing, and uh, they just started to work with one another. And after some years, during which you really felt like you were cut off as a friend. And it was hard for me, because I had counted on Stephen a lot for sharing consciousness. And then after a while, I began to be, they began to open up to me and allow me in. And then I began to see the effect of that. I began to see what happens when people learn how to really open, trust, meditate together, keep emptying, keep clearing, work until they are a shared awareness. And if you watch them when they're teaching together, when they're on the platform, or when they're together, they are really, they've done some extraordinary work. They still have a lot of work to do. I mean, they're not cooked by any means, but they have done some really good stuff together. And that's hard and it's rare. It's rare. I, on the other hand, have gone into relationships and realized that I can't hear my own truth in the relationship and I've had to stop it because I didn't, wasn't willing to surrender the life games that I was in for that relationship. It just wasn't worth the effort. I treasured what I was doing in my life too much to invest in that relationship that deeply. So I've heard it both ways. You hear that? You hear what I'm saying? It's, it's not fair to say that any relationship that isn't involved in the yoga of relationship is not useful and fulfilling to people. Because a lot of people come together because it's just really comfortable living with another person and there's a wonderful kind of sweet intimacy and it's fun to cook with each other and fun to sleep together and it's fun to, to just live life together without trying to get too deep in as a spiritual practice. And many of those people have other spiritual practices. They go off and meditate and one, else, one does something else, a Tai Chi or something else. And that seems fine to me. I don't think you should make believe that a, a relationship is really yoga unless you're willing to really put the effort into making it such. And if you are, it really fills all the space for a long time. Am I hearing the issue clearly or do you, somebody want to say anything about that? When I'm in a relationship with somebody else and what they do upsets me, because I understand that my life experiences are the gift of my guru in order to bring me to God, that if somebody upsets me, that's my problem. This is a hard one, because we don't usually think these ways in this culture. What I see other people is, as, I see them as like trees in, in the forest. You go into the woods, and you see gnarled trees and live oaks and pines and hemlocks and elms and things like that. And you're not inclined to say, I don't like you because you're a pine. You appreciate trees the way they are. But the minute you get near humans, you notice how quick it changes. 
as a way in which you don't allow humans to just manifest the way they are. You take it personally. You keep taking other people personally. All they are are mechanical runoffs of old karma. <laughs> really is what they are. I mean, they look real and they think they're real, but really what they are is mechanical runoff. So they say, see, and you karmically go, and then one of you says, we've got to work this out. And the other says, yes, we must. And then you start to work it out. And it's all mechanical. It's all conditioned stuff. I mean, I'm really being, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that if somebody, I mean, somebody comes along and gets to me, they get me angry or uptight or they awaken some desire in me. Wow, am I delighted. They got me. And that's my work on myself. If I'm angry with you because your behavior doesn't fill my model of how you should be, that's my problem for having models. No expectations, no upset. You're a liar and a cheat, that's your karma. If I'm cheated, that's my work on myself. My attempting to change you, that's a whole other ballgame. What I'm saying is I will only be happy if you are different than you are. You're asking for it, really asking for it. Think of how many relationships you say, I really don't like that person's this. If they would only be this, if I can only I can be happy. Isn't that weird? Why can't I be happy with them the way they are? You're a liar, a cheat, and a scoundrel, and I love you. <laughs> I won't play any games with you, but I love you. It's interesting to move to the level where you can appreciate, love, and allow in the same way you would in the woods, instead of constantly bringing in that judging component, which is really rooted out of your own feelings of lack of power. Judging comes out of your own fear. Now, I fall trapped to it all the time, but every time I do, I catch myself. Okay, that's the beginning, let's go. Question. <coughs> You on board yet, or are you still here? Yes? No? Okay. You don't give me feedback, I'm going home. The hell with you all. <laughs> okay, let's go. A problem seems to be that when you're in a relationship in the beginning, everything is accepted. But then if you marry that person, <laughs> And uh, that's a problem, which leads to my question. Uh, I have been um, in several relationships in my life, major relationships, and uh, been married and divorced twice. And I'm searching for something special, something I've been told is called a soulmate. Do you? believe in such a relationship or person and what would that mean? How would I know that? Cut it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> keep looking. <laughs>
I mean, I'll, I'll give you the farthest out answer, first of all, and then we'll come back to something that everybody can handle. <laughs> In the farthest out answer, we have all been around so many times that every one of us has been everything with everybody else. So when I look at you, you and I have been in so many relationships together, it's just we don't remember. Do you know how many times we've been born and died? Remember that story Buddha says? If you take a, mile, a mountain six miles long, six miles wide, six miles high, that's the, the distance a bullock walks in a day. And a bird flies over the mountain once every hundred years with a silk scarf in its beak. In the length of time it takes the scarf to wear away the mountain, that's how long you've been doing this. I just think of that, once every hundred years the scarf goes over, a scarf and a mountain. It goes on and on and on and on. I mean, in India there are yugas and kalpas of hundreds of thousands of years. Of, and, and then they just start cycles all over again. And we've been through all of them again and again and again and again. Now. Behind all of it is the one, and that's all there is. This is all, all of us here are one in drag appearing to be many. So we are all soul mate. There's only one of it. It's not mate because it's not even two, it's just one. There's only one of us. So what you're really doing is constantly marrying yourself at the deepest level of God marrying God, right? Now you come down into soul, and each soul has a unique karmic predicament, uh, you could call it a psychic DNA code, that in a way guides which way its life will go. And it is entirely possible that souls, when they take birth in parents, in, into parents that are part of their karma, will at some point meet a being and they have agreed in advance to come down and do this together and meet. And that's what we usually call soulmates. What you have found from your past marriages is that what you are attracted to in a person isn't what you ultimately live with. After the, they say the honeymoon is over, and it's after the desire systems that were dominant in the relationship that have the attraction in it pass and all of it passes, then you're left with the work to do. And it's the same work. When you trade in one partner for another, you still have the same work. You're gonna to have to do sooner or later when the pizzazz is over. And it just keeps going over. And you can't, you can't milk the romanticism of relationship too long as you become more conscious. It's more interesting than that. It really is. And people keep wanting to romanticize their lives all the time. It's part of the culture. But the awakening process starts to show you the emptiness of that form. And you start to go for something deeper. You start to go to meet another human being in truth. And truth is scary. Truth has bad breath at times. Truth is boring. Truth, you know, burns the food. Truth is all the stuff. Truth has anger. Truth has all of it. And you stay in it and you keep working with it and keep opening to it and keep deepening it. And Every time you trade in a partner, you realize that that's, that's not, there's no good or bad about it. I'm not talking good or bad about this. But you begin to see how you keep coming to the same place in relationships. And then you tend to stop because it gets too heavy. Because your, your identity gets threatened too much. Because for the relationship to move to the next level of truth requires 
an opening and a vulnerability that you're not quite ready to make. And so you entrench, you retrench, you pull back, and then you start to judge and push away, and then you move to the next one. And then you have the rush of the openness, and then the same thing starts to happen. And so you keep saying, where am I going to find the one where this doesn't happen? And it'll only happen when it doesn't happen in you. When you start to take and watch the stuff and get quiet enough inside yourself so you can take that process as it's happening and start to work with it and keep coming back to living truth in yourself with the other person, even though it's scary and hard. You hear the, what I'm talking about? So... The other person has to work with you. That well, that's interesting. The ideal, of course, is where two people work together. But in, like in India, where many marriages are arranged and you don't even see your wife until after the wedding. I mean, they wear masks at the wedding in some, color, in some villages. I don't know what they do in southern India. In North Krishna and Radha, they wear masks. And then they take off the mask and there they are for life because there's no divorce. I mean, you don't, don't divorce in a village if, if, uh, if the husband dies, the wife goes on the funeral pyre. And so this is it. This is it for life. It's got its benefits. <laughs> but what's interesting about that is when they understand dharma of relationship, there is a way in which it's like what the Marines say, that if you can change it, you, can, you change it, and if you can't, paint it. <laughs> and when you can't change a marriage, you start to work with it. I thought it was to stand still, paint. <laughs> well, <it's> <laughs> you can't move it. The, the, when you have something that you're in, like I couldn't trade my father in for another father. He was given to me. That's the given. I can't divorce my father. I can go away from him, but I can't divorce him. And what I found was because I had to keep dealing with my father who called me Ramdam and who, you know, he, he loved me a lot and he thought I was very sweet and well-meaning and, and we were buddies and... But it was weird, because he didn't really understand what I was doing. And um, <laughs> he attended a, a, a gathering in New York on the Central Park West, where Judith works also, in a church where they have Christ washing the feet of the disciples on the mural on the back wall. He was back there with my stepmother-to-be, and I was up there in a white robe with beads. Did I tell you this? <laughs> and he, he whispered to her, he says, I feel like the Virgin Mary. <laughs> which for a Jew is pretty good. <laughs> but she was, so it's okay. Um, we forget that, don't we? <laughs> but uh, Dad was interesting work for me because he was a given. You know, I couldn't trade in. In the last years, I was with him a lot. And, um, and I began to see that that was work on myself to not judge him, not to try to change him. He was what he was. He was a perfect statement of dad. He was absolutely perfect who he was. It was only when I had a model of how I would like my father to be that there was trouble. I wanted him not to suffer when death, so I wanted him to understand what I understood about dying. And he didn't want to understand it. <laughs> and I was frustrated because I meant well. I knew if he understood it, he wouldn't suffer. The worst problem is trying to take the suffering away from people you love. That's the stinker. You keep wanting to take away their suffering. And you don't even know why it's there in the first place. It's so interesting to allow people to be who they are.
Finally, I think in relationships, you create an environment with your own work on yourself, which you offer to another human being to use to grow in the way they need to grow. Parents are an environment for their children. Lovers are an environment for their partners. Children are an environment for their parents. And you keep working. You become the soil, moist and soft and receptive, so the person can grow the way they need to grow. Because how do you know how they should grow? People have two children. One of them is a very old incarnation, an old llama, who just dropped down to bless everybody. The other one is immediately post-Neanderthal. <laughs> You know, and they're, they're siblings, and they my children, you know, and they're two entirely different two beings. So you've just got to listen to hear what a human being needs, who they need to be in a lifetime. So when you work with a situation where you don't change it, you just work on yourself a different way. The idea of manipulating the universe in order for you to be happy is just one model. The other model is manipulate your own mind till you're happy with what you got. Which is probably the only way to do it. Finally, that's the only way to do it. Because if you keep manipulating the environment, it's never right. Do you ever notice that thing? I mean, I've gone to, I go to Kauai and, you know, Hawaii, rent a house, get a car, have a lover, get art supplies, get fish, get... <laughs> but do you notice the weather is a little clammy today? <laughs> Damn it, the Jeep they gave us, it's not running on all the cylinders. That damn restaurant was closed tonight. I mean, I can watch how you can create an absolute hell out of the whole thing that was to be heaven and paradise. And then you just laugh at yourself. And then finally, the, the image I have, which I've told so many times, um, of being in, in Borelli at the railway station in India, when I realized the train was going to be two days late. <laughs> And the station was full of people who were living there. And these were families with kids that were peeing everywhere and they had goats and chickens and vendors selling everything. I mean, it's life. It's real life in the Borelli railway station. And I didn't have much money at that time. And I had, I was barefoot because I was a yogi in those days. And the latrine, I had uh, dysentery and the latrine hadn't, it had stopped up maybe, oh, a few weeks before. And so the fecal matter was sort of everywhere. And there were flies, I mean, millions of flies. And I had to go about every 15 minutes. And now my mother raised me. Um, she, uh, she had very definite models of toilet training and she taught me, she taught me what hell was and the closest to hell of her mind was the Borelli railway station latrine. I mean, if she had ever seen it, that would be, she would realize she had, she had met her fantasy, right? And there I was, it was interesting because I found myself sitting there, knowing I had to go to the bathroom, feeling it coming, and knowing I had to go in there, and then coming back, and then sitting and going, it's got toilet paper. For those that don't see, Claire has a roll of toilet paper. <laughs>
And there was a moment when I realized in the midst of all that, that I was happy. And I thought, this is impossible. Everything my training prepared me for was to not be happy at this moment. And I'm happy. And it was interesting. I was happy because there was, there was life force, there was openness, there were people, there was realness, there was softness, it was alive. And also because I was really at peace in myself. And this was just the stuff to deal with. And in a way, that experience shifted my consciousness about manipulating the universe to be happy. I'll still make it as nice as I can for me. But then where it isn't, I don't sit around being preoccupied with what isn't. Just open to it. Ah, so, and here we go. Here we go. Because the amount of time you create a hell with your own mind because of your attachments to your models of how it should be that are different from the way it is. You can see it in this culture about growing old. You see the model that a person develops about themselves. And then as their body changes, because I used to do 100 push-ups and now I can only do 70. And there's a deep depression. That interesting. I can't even do one. <laughs> and I'm not depressed. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> Next question. I find that um, when I'm dealing with pain or anger or fear, um, especially when I'm sharing it with somebody, I do a manipulation thing where I think I'm, I'm facing I'm facing it, but a lot of it gets pushed down pushed inside. Down. And so my question, I guess, is how to really keep open to those things and, and without playing that game with them. You're talking about manipulating them or yourself? Do you feel you're selling out to be with them or do you feel you're trying to manipulate them? To, what are you telling me? It's not, it's not a real conscious thing. It's, a, it's an ego trip. <laughs> well, most everything we do is on this plane. It's hard not to be. I mean, the spirit is mediated through ego. It's just a question of how identified you are with it. To tell me these things in yourself is acknowledging the fact that you see them at some level. And when you're with another partner that you're really trying to work with, by acknowledging that stuff with each other, it doesn't mean that you have to extract something from them. It's just that the relationships that are the most exciting are where the contract is to share truth. Many relationships don't have that kind of a contract. They have a contract of, you won't threaten my ego and I won't threaten yours. We'll both feel comfortable. But if the relationship is designed where you agree and agree, let us, when I say to you, will you help me awaken by sharing your truth with me? It may be difficult for me to hear it, but that's the work I will do with myself. And then you say to me, would you help me awaken through sharing your truth with me. Sometimes it'll be hard for me, but I'll work on myself with it. That relationship gets very exciting. That gets loaded. That's, that's juicy. I mean, Jai and I have been friends for many years, and we have that contract. 
And sometimes it's been hard. There have been moments when his truth to me has been painful for me to work with, as mine has been to him. But we trust each other because we're both committed to awakening because we both love Maharaji so much that we take that truth and we keep working it and working with it. It's the same in my relation with Judith, who I've been with for many years, same way. Now, those kinds of truth relationships are very precious. They're very delicate, but you... So what you do is when you see that stuff in yourself, you can say to the other person, I see how I am manipulating. And you just keep bringing it out. And the two of you bring it out and examine it with good faith. You keep doing that. You keep working and get as close as you can with it. And if the relationship doesn't allow that, then the work has got to be in yourself of bringing it up and seeing the way you're doing it. I mean, I have a very manipulative quality in me that I have had to work with a lot over the years to the point where when I see myself doing it, either somebody points it out to me or I begin to see myself doing it. And then the interesting question is, what do you do with that moment? Do you get into, oh, you're a no good bum because you're doing that again? Or do you just kind of let it go and let it flow by? Ah, so there I am again. Manindra, who was one of my wonderful meditation teachers, once I came to him and I was so upset about something. And he says, Ram Das, don't you see it's just old karma running off? And I really heard that. It's just old stuff out of us running off. Bring it up, look at it, and let it go. Okay. I think it has to do with um, the relationship of student to spiritual teacher. And it has to do with um, one view is that the student should never accept blindly what the teacher puts on them or tells them. That one should check it out to look at themselves. And the other view is one should totally surrender their being to the teacher. Now, if you are the student in this kind of situation, which way do you go? How do you know what to do? I think you surrender only to truth. And your intuitive heart has to be the final arbiter of where the truth lies, the final judge of where the truth lies. And you're surrendering to, what you're surrendering to is God in the form of another person. And there are often times where, because most of the beings that we call gurus are really teachers, the likelihood of finding somebody that's a cooked goose is reasonably slim. Since they're not cooked geese, they have their own karma. They have their own stuff. And so they become somebody through whom a teaching comes, but they themselves are not truth. They are merely a vehicle through which, if there is a purity in your heart in the way you seek truth, you will take, as the, as the swan is able to separate milk from water, you separate the purity of their message from the stuff of their karma. And you take the truth and you work with it. So my, like some teachers will say, I've given you so much, you owe, you've got to do this for me. I would say the only thing you owe a teacher is for you to get enlightened or free. That's all you owe them. Because they're doing it out of the grace and good fortune that they're able to do it. And that should be enough for them. You don't owe them to take care of them. You may want to out of your love for them, but there's not an obligation in that sense. My sense is that when we surrender to a teacher and then end up feeling burned by their impurities, 
there was a conspiracy between the teacher and you for everybody to do themselves in through each other. And everybody's getting their comeuppance. I have watched this again and again because there is a whole panoply of impurity in the teaching scenes. What if you don't feel that, though? What if you feel that no matter what happens? Would you take talking to the microphone? What if you don't feel that? What if you feel that? The teacher themselves is very pure. If there's any impurity, it's coming from your lack of knowledge, and you don't feel that. If you intuitively feel that, then you listen and you go as close to surrender as you can go. But you've got to hear that the, the final spiritual surrender is no surrender. It's a surrender where there's nothing to surrender because you already, because the highest thing in the other person is the same as the highest thing in you. But I don't know that yet. No, but you're surrendering constantly into the highest part of your truth. And intuitively, there's a place in you that does know that. Even though you don't know, you know it. So that you're making approximations and what you may do is fall on your face. Well, I figure if one goes to surrender trip, one's really going to get burned. The fact is that you can't really decide to surrender. Because that's just another trip of power. I'm surrendering to you, you know. Give me the truth. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The relationship between a pure master and a chela is a matter that has nothing to do with the intellect whatsoever. There's no choice involved in it at all. That is such deep karmic unfolding that you are drawn to the master when the moment is right and the unfolding happens totally at a level where when it's right, you just, ah, 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 ah. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.